0: Episode 164 Above Ground Podcast Damage Plan with the Venerable Robina Corton. Disclaimer The host of this podcast, Timothy Patrick and Will Foley, are by no means medical professionals. However, having lived experience with mental illness themselves, they have gained useful perspectives on common mental health issues that some of us struggle to overcome on a daily basis. By sharing their stories, they hope to create connection. By creating connection, they hope to help you find your purpose. And through purpose, we can all begin to build the foundation for positive mental health. This is Above Ground Podcast. Coming at you live with real conversations about mental health from the peer perspective. it's time for Above Ground Podcast. Now your hosts, TPP and Will Foley. What is up, everyone? Welcome to episode 164 of Above Ground Podcast. With the Venerable Robina Corton. An amazing conversation with an amazing woman. She is a Buddhist nun from Nova Scotia. We have that coming up for you momentarily. But Above Ground Podcast is on the move again. This is the summer of getting out there back into the community and handing out resources and having conversations. We just came off of Nipperfest and now we are heading into the Summer on Central WAMC Concert Series, which is going on at the Linda on Central Ave in Albany, New York. 3.39 Central Ave to be exact. And WAMC and Nippertown and the city of Albany are teaming up to do Summer on Central Concert Series on Saturdays throughout August. Every Saturday in August. And Saturday, August 6th, we will be there. We will be there with a table for your resources. And so will Kyla Silk, the Rock Voices Choir, and Super 400. That's right, Super 400. Kyla Silk and Rock Voices Choir will be at the Summer on Central Concert Series with WAMC in Nippertown on August 6th. And Above Ground Podcast will be there also. And we will also be there for the last, the last of the Summer on Central concert series, which is the Nippertown March Music Madness Final Four. And that is Saturday, August 27th with Shortwave Radio Band, Pony in the Pancake, Girl Blue, and Side B. So an amazing concert series coming up that is being produced by WAMC, which is our local NPR station here in the 518. And WAMC is something that I personally listen to on quite a I, quite a quite length uh, during the day on my travels and journeys throughout the, the capital district and beyond. And again, we can't thank you so much for coming up and talking to us at, Nippertown, at Nipper Town Nipperfest 2022 and looking forward to celebrating the rest of the summer and fall with you as above ground podcast will be out there handing out resources and having real conversations all right and now without further ado it's time for the venerable robina court it's time to have your damage plan hey what is up everyone welcome to above ground podcast above ground podcast
1: because you can't serve below
0: Oh TPP! Wow, there you go, buddy.
1: It's Sunday. It's Sunday evening. It's Sunday
0: evening, man, and uh, I'm very, very stoked for this one. Uh, We have an amazing guest with us this this evening, Uh, Timmy. You want to expand on it?
1: Oh, I mean, I don't even know if I can do do it justice. But um, uh, I what happened? I'll just give you a quick little brief. Uh, What happened was somebody sent me a video, and it was this woman talking about. The, the one quote that really stuck me, she said, anger is the response when attachment doesn't get what it wants. And I was just like, I, I wrote it down. I set it next to my bed. I was like, it was just blew blew me away. So I I watched a few of her videos and I reached out and surprisingly she responded. So um, we are blessed and welcoming uh, venerable Ro- Robina. Is it Curtin? Yes,
2: Robina Corton. That's exactly right. Corton. Robina yes.
1: Corton. Yes. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I'm whatever. I thought what, what you're doing is amazing, and I'm so happy to be here. So happy to have these talks. Unbelievably necessary and important. Abs-
0: absolutely. Thank you so and thank you so much for taking time out of your busy thank night you. to join us. I I think we I think we jump right in because I think that's the best way to do it. How How can Buddhism help us navigate the world today? From exactly
2: perfect. Yeah. So perfect question. Well, you know, Will, I think in in, in, in our modern culture, I say West, but it includes not just Western people, but modern culture, which of course is the philosophical materialist view of the world. And that's great, there's there's a lot of um, I think a lot of misconceptions, maybe a lot of misconceptions about this ancient Indian way of seeing the world I mean, I think first of all, I remember the Dalai Lama saying recently it was these amazing Indians more than 3,000 years ago and this is well before the Buddha, these genius beings who who had come up with extraordinary kind of views of the universe, who who developed these amazing skillful techniques called uh, the world knows vaguely as mindfulness, which come from this extraordinary technique, this psychological skill, these genius Indians in invented 3,000 years ago, and as his holiness said, you know, it was these amazing Indians more than 3,000 years ago who began the investigation into the nature of self so my sense is you know we modern people probably thought it was mr freud 100 years ago so i think now we're really discovering the incredible wisdom and and i don't, and I don't mean that in a mystical way genuine wisdom about the way the mind works coming from india i mean what do we you know we, we maybe track ourselves back to the greeks you know european style but there's extraordinary so more and more these days there's knowledge about this but i still think there's a lot of cliched ideas you know so if you really strip it down which is very much what i, need, I like to do it's so important if something's valid it's got to be kind of valid in our culture in our way of speaking you know in our turns of phrases so basically buddha buddha's an expertise expert on the mind that's his expertise and that means the the inner workings of the subjective workings of this inner process of thoughts and feelings and emotions and i don't mean the brain i don't know you know buddha doesn't mind about the brain he's talking about the actual cognitive process itself so the key skill in buddhism is that that we can learn to become super familiar in a really clear, precise way with the, with with all the thoughts and feelings and emotions, which initially seem like chaos to us. And the real tragedy is we often don't notice what we're thinking and feeling until it vomits out the mouth or until you're inert in bed one day and you can't, you don't know what's going on. We wait till the body feels it. So the real skill that we can get from Buddhism is the ability to, and it takes time, to start to listen to all these cognitive stories that inform the emotions before they get to the level of emotion. And then we realize we can start to, To really work with what goes on in the mind, because it's the changing of our mind and the cognitive stories that is the real that's the key to success. And that's the thing that Buddhism absolutely says every one of us can do, you know, I mean, one of my teachers says we can mold our minds into any shape we like. That's the fundamental starting point. We can learn to become familiar with what goes on in here. And then we can learn to reconfigure what goes on in here. Because what goes on in here is the surprisingly to us, is the main source of whether we're completely crazy or completely sane, that we can learn to navigate and change our thoughts and feelings and emotions. That's the essence of it.
1: I guess the the beginning, the start, the foundation would be mindfulness and watching our thoughts
2: well you know that's interesting it is in general but what's fascinating and this is often not how we talk in our culture tim you know we can see we've got we've got body we have speech and we have mind but we tend to sort of think where there's one big lump of me kind of plodding through life the buddhist approach to practice is very interesting they would say the, the, the the essence of it yes is to do exactly that but first we need to harness the crazy energy of our body and speech which means discipline, which means learning to discipline as what you know, as the servants of our mind, which is the body and speech. So what happens is, I mean, like in my life, anger is like my middle name. You know, since a little girl, my mother did not have to teach me. The millisecond my attachment didn't get what it wanted. It, it exploded out of my mouth. My body expressed it. And let's look at the world. We can see that's what does the damage, that's what does the harm. We know in our relationships, you blurt out even one word. Once it's out, you can't take it back. So it sounds boring, but it's a profound practice. We have to first learn to get some discipline over our body and speech and be be skillful in what we say and do. And then we have the luxury to go to the the real level of practice. And as one of my teachers says, learn to be your own therapist. So yeah, but but that sounds boring in our culture. I'll control my body and speech. What does that mean? You know, because we go, I'm allowed to say what I like. We don't think it matters, but we can see even just speech. It hugely matters, you know? so yes absolutely what you're saying but first get some and that demands some kind of um aware, self-awareness doesn't it we don't have much self-awareness we usually just kind of have no feeling of who i am and we just we just plot around life responding mindlessly to circumstances so we've got to sort of step back from it and and know that we can learn to be in charge first of the servants of your mind then the mind itself absolutely
0: so self-awareness is the first yeah. major key to figuring out how to operate in life right
2: no it really is and and having the view that i can do something about it whereas we tragic you know i think in our culture we tragically don't develop skills like that. We don't, we, I mean, the more and more these days, I mean, there are marvellous therapies around, there are marvellous people helping people become more conscious, but that's that takes time. You know, I mean, if we can see the the, the usual way we are, if we're not aware, is this is what victim means. We're just completely mindless. We just think someone else plonked me on this planet. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what, why things happen. Happiness and suffering seem to be all just good luck and bad luck, and we have no way of interpreting it all, just except responding. So to begin to get some awareness and to some confidence that i can i i'm in charge of me i can be in charge of me that's absolutely right and that's already powerful I think we. I think. I think it's sort of interesting. And it's not, you know, even the way we tend to feel. We can see the words. We, the way we feel. I didn't ask to get born, did I? Already, there's a feeling of victim in that. That either a creator, I'm not being rude here, plonked me on this planet, or mummy and daddy plonked me on this planet. I mean, just interestingly, out of interest, the Buddhist view is we we come into this world program with our own stuff. I mean, as we know, Buddhism talks about past lives and future lives. I mean, it's all in the literature. We don't need to talk about it, but. The, the, the idea is that what is inside us is ours, and we, you know, and we can, we need to learn to become familiar with it, so we can change it. And that that's already an amazing starting point.
0: How can Buddhism help us with our mental health?
2: Yeah, so it's so interesting. You know, um, <clears throat> when we think of Buddhism, I think in the world we put it in the in the, don't we put it in the spiritual category, and I think because we're so hard edge in the West, we would never equate that with so called psychology. But if you analyse it, psychology is a Greek word for dealing with your mind, and it's not a joke to say that actually Buddha's expertise is the human mind. That's a bit of a surprise to us. But, I mean, it's the Dalai Lama these days who's been having all these amazing conversations with neuroscientists and thinkers. It's now becoming well-known in the West, in the modern world, that these genius Indians have existed even before the Buddha. I mean, as the Dalai Lama said, it was these amazing Indians more than 3,000 years ago who were the ones who began the invention investigation into the nature of self and it's only really now becoming known you know I mean they're these extraordinary sophisticated yogis and scholars and thinkers and we kind of imagine we're so arrogant we probably thought it was Mr Freud 100 years ago but I mean really we're very rude you know the interesting thing is that you know the Buddha's um the the Buddhist approach is actually the mind so it's like and, and it's almost deceptively simple kind of model of the mind because it's in many ways it's so radically different from how we deal with things our mental health in the West, I would say that. And I mean, I could just briefly start, start some points if you'd like, but you just, so I can now go there, you know? Okay. Absolutely.
0: If, please. The,
2: the crucial thing, the crucial, I would say the crucial difference in the Buddhist model of the mind is it's, a, it, you know, I think, um, we we are brilliant at neuroscience, aren't we? Very brilliant, skillful, wise. This little bit does this, little bit does that, and it's very precise and detailed. Well, that level of precision and analysis is exactly the Buddhist approach but it's not dealing with anything physical. It's dealing with the internal subjective cognitive process itself. Because the Buddhist view actually says the mind is not the brain. I'm not trying to be controversial here, you know, but the real point is, it's this incredible internal way our conceptual stories work. Forget the brain, but I mean, the Buddhist approach is that we can learn to become super familiar with the workings of our own thoughts and feelings and emotions. It takes time, and there are many obstacles preventing us from doing it, and we can go through those, but that's the skill we need to learn. And fundamentally, the Buddhist view is, as one of my teachers says, we can mould our mind into any shape we like, you know? Absolutely. So So if you think about it, the way we tend to be, and no one has to teach us this, we're very all convinced, I think, that the main thing that t- turns us into the person we become is the, is the outside world. Mummy, daddy, the genes, the brains, the DNA, the naughty Catholic church who taught us when we were children, the mean boyfriend, Always the external world. The first instinct is to point to the external, you know, not just for, oh, wow, you're, you're a mean boyfriend, you caused me suffering, but, you know, you're a kind boyfriend and you caused me happiness. So we actually think happiness and suffering come from outside. And that's why we spend our lives, is it not true, manipulating the outside world to get it to be just so, so I can get happy. Buddha says there's nothing wrong with that, but, hey, honeys, you're missing the main point. If you change your actual attitude towards it, your cognitive story about it, you can get the best of both worlds. And that's why I love to always use my friends in prison as examples. They don't have the luxury of changing a damn physical thing, but they can change their way of seeing the world. We, this is not a new concept to us. It's just that we're a bit lazy. We'd rather change the outside thing, or we blame the outside, both for our suffering and our happiness. So the real skill is Buddha says, nothing wrong with that, change something. If you can, please change it. But what if you can't? That's when the work starts. And that's the essence of the whole Buddhist approach.
1: Is that more of like, uh, with that last thing you said, is that more of the acceptance part of it?
2: Well, it's not, I mean, that can be sort of sounding really passive. It's not just that. It's not just accepting the bad things, it's learning to reinterpret them in, and not resist them and go crazy. Learn other ways to navigate them, learn other ways to interpret them. We all right. say. And so, but not only that, but also it gives us skills to know how to deal with all the wonderful things that happen. Because instead of going berserk and grasping on at everything, instead of having a mental breakdown when things go wrong, we can learn to become more wise and more skillful and more grown up in the way we literally interpret the external world in order to become more content and fulfilled and self-confident and therefore more compassionate and wise you know i mean we can to become a better so in other words this molding your mind into any shape you like i mean one approach the buddhist view is i mean this is where it sounds deceptively simple The Buddhist model talks about, basically, we've got neurotic, deluded, eye-based, fear-based, unhappy states of mind that are the source of our own pain and the source of why we make a mess of our relationships. And and, and guess what? They're called attachment, anger, jealousy, depression, low self-esteem. We all know these. And then we've got the positive, appropriate states of mind called intelligence, self-confidence love compassion and buddhism goes into really precise detail in identifying these conceptual stories that underpin those emotions so you can reconfigure those conceptual stories really you learn to really reconfigure the way you see the world to reconfigure these conceptual stories that underpin the emotions but our tragedy is we get so we're so, we only notice what's going on in our mind when the body's shaking. You only notice you're depressed when you can't get out of bed one morning. You only notice you're angry when you want when you want to kill your boyfriend, but it's a bit late, you know? So the Buddhist skill is to learn to observe. And that's where a proper little technique every morning helps to, to set out of your, get out of your head and observe your mind, observe all the crazy thoughts and begin to make sense of them. And then know you've got the power to not just blurt out what you feel and punch everybody you feel like, but you learn to have more kind of grown up Really, to, to to and we do all this. Buddha doesn't own this. He's not. He's got copyright on it. He's just very good at it. That's all. Do you get my point? So we can be in charge of our lives, and we all want that.
0: But do we all want that? Do you think oh, okay. we're afraid we of being? The
2: gun, okay, then you're right. If we don't want, <laughs> it, then we'll just keep them miserable. You're absolutely <laughs> exactly. Wow. it's possible. The Buddha's view is it's possible, every one of us. But it's kind of the hardest job we'll ever do because why? One, I prefer to blame my boyfriend for my happiness, if you put it that way, or my suffering. I, I. Two, I don't notice what's going on, and this is our major problem, until it's too late. I always use this dumb analogy, like as if you, you, you have this brand new car, but you've never heard of the concept of mechanics. So you drive it until one day at 100 miles an hour on the freeway. Oh, my wheels are falling off. What can I do? Well, it's a bit late, honey. So we have zero approach to our mind like that. We just go and go until you want to kill somebody or kill yourself. And then we go to our therapist. You know, It's just too late. We've got to pay more attention and know we can work with what's in there, even the painful stuff. And this is why I swear to you, my prisoners, my friends in prison, they don't have any choice but to do that. I mean, I can tell you some amazing examples. There was this one woman I always mention. Her name's Sunny. She's American. Back in the 70s. She was hitching with a hippie husband and hippie kids, and two guys picked them up, roughly speaking. And then the two guys got stopped by the police. The guys killed the police and blamed the hippie. So they're on death row in Florida. Like seventeen years of hell she went through. The husband eventually got executed. She even attended the execution, and his head burst into flames. I mean, don't talk to me about prisons, never mind. But anyway, it was like this nightmare. She was living in this cell for years on end. She's totally innocent. And this is this amazing woman. She's not even Buddhist. She just had this incredible, I would call it incredible emotional intelligence. She said, at some point, I finally realized I couldn't change anything, but they couldn't take my mind from me. So I decided I am not a prisoner. I'm a monk. I'm not in a cell. I'm in a cave. I mean, it almost sounds romantic. But she had this fierce determination. But she had the real skill to see that even though she couldn't change the outside, she could change the way she experienced it and saw it and interpreted it. Now we all hear examples like this, you know. But it's just this is the this is the skill. This is the Buddha's skill. And we've got to have the confidence we can do that. Then you can be in charge of your life. Then you can enjoy the outside world. But it you won't make you crazy. You'll be able to navigate it this is this is the essence of being a buddhist i tell you
0: what is what is the first step that as us individuals can take Uh, is it acceptance
2: i think that's too many steps ahead okay step is to think wow i would like to be happy i know it's possible and i know that the key the key the key the key job is to learn to kn- to learn to know my mind become familiar with it and then slowly change the conceptual stories that's awareness i Even, would say yeah, you, you okay no to first no. know it's possible the first know it's possible and then when it's possible you'll know you'll want to do it so then you but then you'd learn text i mean it takes time all i can tell you is it does take time we can't hold our breath and hope it's going to happen tomorrow it's hard work. Like a friend of mine who's a Buddhist and a therapist, she says, Rebellion, is like having your hands in your own shit because you've got to deal with what's the rubbish inside there and learn to own it and know you can change it because we're not set in stone. So the first step is to know it's possible, and then this gradual work of developing some skill to pay attention, yeah, pay attention to your thoughts. But this sounds ridiculous, but a really powerful starting point, and this is very key in the Buddhist approach, is you bet you first got to control the servants of your mind, and guess what they are? your body and your speech so all my life i prided myself on saying exactly what i wanted when i wanted so i hurt so many human beings you know so my first job is zip the lip and if you can't if i can't control the servant of my anger which is my mouth in my case i didn't punch and kill how in the name of god can i change my mind so your first one is learn the practical approach of just it's like being grown up control your mouth control your body don't just leap on every piece of cake you want don't just vomit every out every word you feel and it's not being fundamentalist it's being intelligent so you don't run around harming yourself and harming others and the other point in buddhism which is a deal about karma which is a philosophical view of the universe basically not just a hippie trippy thing is that everything we think and do and say produces the person we become so you get this real sense of wanting to know your own mind wanting to change your own self because everything you think and do and say produces who you become this is what, you know, we are the boss, in other words, the Buddha's view. We can become, we, we, everything we think and do and say, they say, leave seeds in the mind that produce your future experiences, you know, or program you, if you like. So this sense of responsibility is what comes slowly. And knowing that you, my, my Catholic mother used to say, virtue has its own rewards so to really get to see that when i'm miserable i'm angry i'm depressed who do you think is suffering forget the people i harm have a look at yourself if we could even own that and see that this depression itself the anxiety itself the jealousy itself that is so painful of course external world is terrible of course people do terrible things to us there's no denying that but if we completely believe you know, what do you mean I should change, they should change, then you're in trouble. So it demands a lot of grown-upness, really, to know we can change, learn to control our body, our speech and our mind, and turn ourselves into the person we want to become. So the first step is just to know it's possible. Then you yes to learn to develop the awareness of your thoughts and feelings, but it really takes time because it's such a mess in there, you know? And it's slowly, 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 and having that confidence.
0: Is there is there a tool that can help us? to start to uncover that is it sitting down to meditate
2: exactly the first kind of the buddha's skill is these brilliant meditation skills you know i mean they came from indians even before the buddha and all the, the the general world view about what's called mindfulness and there are like 47 varieties now and that's okay They're all coming from this root, this powerful technique developed by these genius Indians centuries ago that enables you, when it's really developed, to get to really completely subdue the the neurotic. No, sorry, the the gross conceptual sensory level of our mind, because Buddhism would assert we've got this much subtler levels. We don't even posit these in neuroscience. So we're talking at quite a sophisticated level. That's the long term. We can get this laser like subtle focus, where then with that subtle focus, you can do this amazing work of reconfiguring all your thoughts. So you start with a simple technique, even three minutes a day of learning to concentrate. So a typical one the Buddha taught you decide to focus on something. you got to anchor your mind to something. So you focus on the breath, for example. The sensation at your nose as you breathe in and out is simple, and you just decide, I'm going to pay attention to the breath. Well, what will happen in two seconds is you wander off. We chat, chat, chat to ourselves. So you develop the skill to bring the attention back to the breath. You bring your attention back to the breath. That's a simple technique for even three to four minutes. You're not going to be very good at it but you're training yourself to make to be disciplined not just to follow mindlessly every thought so you're developing the discipline and from that comes some begin to bring some awareness so when you open your eyes and you're working in the kitchen your hubby's there the kids are there you're on the road driving you're not just totally focused on the outside and only notice your mind when you want to scream. You're noticing also what's going on in your mind and you start to work with that slowly, slowly. It's it's this gradual, slow skill, you know? I
0: I know one thing that comes up for me a lot is shame.
2: That's interesting, exactly.
0: And is there, I I wanted to know what your view in the Buddhist of shame- You mean guilt. Yeah, guilt, guilt. and maybe that's, and maybe I'm misconstruing shame for guilt.
2: I understand. I think it's one of the commonest ones we've got. Okay. So to to talk about that, I've got to talk about this kind of, um, fundamental view about these all these unhappy neurotic states of mind but the three of them Buddha always they're so cute in the text they refer to them as the three poisons you can say the three toxic emotions that are really the basis of all the others so the most primordial one and i just mention it is most so subtle we don't even notice and this is really when you get into the deeper buddhist wisdom teachings the buddha says we've got this really primordially deep misconception about the very nature of our own self which causes us to be fearful and neurotic the real and its main Voice is this emotional hunger called attachment which wants always wants everything to be lovely always wants everything to be nice so the obvious level of attachment is attachment to sex drugs rock and roll sensory objects we grasp at them believing when i get them i'll get happy that's okay it's not being critical it's just looking at how we are but listen the deeper attachment this is the one that's really primordial is This emotional hunger to be approved of, to be a good boy, to be a good girl. Since we're born, so this is driving us at such a subtle level. It's hard to see it. So when you're a naughty boy, even when you're a little boy, and now when we're a big boy, oh, I did, I did the wrong thing. And almost like we're we're channeling mum or God. I'm a naughty boy. I did something wrong, and we're waiting to be found out. Almost, it's very ancient in us. So we've got this craving to be seen as a nice person. And when we do naughty things, we over exaggerate our bad and then say I'm a bad person. So one way of talking about guilt, it's anger, but you're the object. Like if I'm mad at you, Will, I'll say you did this and you did that and you're a bad person. I'll be angry at you. Well, look at guilt. I did this and I did that and I'm a bad person. So it's really internalized anger. But the key function from the Buddhist point of view, the key function of all the neurotic states of mind is that they exaggerate. So anger exaggerates the badness of things and guilt exaggerates your own badness and we run to it automatically. It's all very subtle. There's attachment and the, the third one, and the third poison is it's called anger, but at a more subtle level it's aversion. So we have attachment to be everything to be lovely and the moment everything isn't lovely, we have this aversion or anger or guilt. It's internalized or externalized and we run between these two like a thousand times a day. Then all the other rubbish kind of stem from these. It's quite primordial, you know. Quite interesting analysis but it takes it, time to hear it
0: it sounds very subconscious that I, totally sub- subconscious
2: and very instinctive we've programmed ourselves to perfection so to unpack all this stuff and unprogram is not easy and not an easy job mm. it's not it's not like a, a really in, oh i think i'll get angry oh i think i'll get depressed what a joke you know we just run to it like a magnet so and the Buddha's view of course if you know we know about the buddha's view buddha talks about how we come into this life programmed not with mum and dad's stuff that's his radical difference but this is the whole view about karma and it's in the, all the philosophy it's all there in the literature we come programmed with our own stuff from our own past the consciousness comes from before 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 that's a major point in the buddhist view you know we come Ge- programmed with our own stuff
0: are you talking about generational trauma as no, we re- as we like to call it
2: no reincarnation
0: oh okay
2: fundamental in the whole buddhist philosophical view of the world you don't have to buy into it but it's just an interesting point you know if we i mean i came into this world with tendency to be angry maybe kind maybe loving maybe good at music and we tend to think that track it back to your mum and dad they could also be good at it but the buddhist one is we really learn to own your own stuff because we brought it with us that's a major difference in buddhism one doesn't have to go into that you but i mean it's it's an interesting approach you know but we have to it's all very automatic no one had to teach me to be angry i promise i had it down you know yeah me too That's right. And then we know. And the tragedy is, of course, because we're born with these habits and they feel so instinctive, our tragedy is we assume this is who I really am. I'm stuck with it and that's a really sad thing but there's nothing set in stone in our minds we can change out there's no mind there's no thing we can't change everything's impermanent you know but we believe this is who I am I'm hopeless I'm no good I'm depressed I'm angry I'm jealous I'm it's like set in stone that's one of our worst crimes against ourselves I think
1: you had mentioned earlier um something that I've said before um yeah. about being basically you know with our health waiting for like a crisis to happen in order to do something. Do you notice is that, is that specific to the West or do you notice that in general as, as people not being more proactive? Are you talking
2: about mental health or physical? Uh,
1: Really anything, but
2: mental health. I think the mental one is mainly. I think as soon as we have a headache, we'll tend to rush off and try and get a pill. As soon as we get a toothache, so we're very conscious of our body and know we can do it. But I think the tragedy is because, as Will said, we have so much guilt and it's all hidden. We don't want to be a naughty girl, so we try to hide it. We're desperate to keep it all away, and we feel so ashamed. So who, you know, and even still, even though therapy is still so, is now so open and so talked about we still wait until you want to kill yourself or your boyfriend before you go to the therapist in other words you you know when you start to feel yourself getting a bit annoyed you don't go to your therapist oh, I got annoyed today that they'd laugh at you but that's the sign that's the wheels wobbling you don't wait till the wheels fall off you don't wait till the wheels fall off before you fix your bloody car you wait the wheels are wobbling it's a big sign go to the mechanic we don't have that attitude about our mind. And I think that's across the board in the West and in Western psychology. It's really tragic. No wonder we all have mental breakdowns. The view here is that we really learn from the tiny childhood to become familiar, know we can learn to work with our minds skillfully. We would never go crazy because you'd you'd grab it in time. It's really hard to deal with 100 miles an hour, the wheels falling off. It's like damage control is your best. That's our big tragedy. But why we wait till then is because we think it's the boyfriend's fault. We think it's the world's fault. Are we guilty and hide it away and feel ashamed? Or and the, and we just don't know how and we don't have tools, you know. I think it's my point. We don't have tools.
1: That's right. Yeah, perfect. I was gonna ask that what what contributes it's very, to it Western. besides okay. the guilt. And
2: maybe it's everywhere, but if you've got this Buddhist approach, if you're brought up with it. I mean or any decent spiritual approach you'd, you'd have tools when you were young and you could learn to work with them i mean of course you can i can see this with good parents who bring up who enable their children to be conscious of their thoughts and feelings you know i mean it's, it's a it's a marvelous thing if you can have parents who do that who parents are already conscious you know not blaming our parents yeah be, it's amazing it's education and more and more these days children are getting this kind of education i think not sure
1: why do you think we see more of the depression, the anger, the anxiety? Mm. Why are we seeing the increase in that, If you, if in your opinion? Well,
2: I'll, I'll, I'll try and just give the Buddhist analysis, okay? Okay. So attachment is this driving force for most of us. And this is the Buddha's view. It's very ancient and very primordially deep, way more subtle than we would imagine. And it's this emotional hunger. And this energy is dissatisfaction. We're never satisfied. So always think, I don't have enough, which causes you to hanker after something. And this is a very powerful feeling of not feeling enough, and that's in our culture. And the irony is, in a culture like ours, where you can just get anything you want in the universe, no matter how much you get, we all know, as my mother used to say, the more you get, the more you want. We all know that, you know. So the more you're always dissatisfied, and you assume if I get the cake, get the boyfriend, get the handbag, it'll it'll cause me to be satisfied, but because but we're still hungry, we're still emotionally hungry. So then we keep when attachment. Um, doesn't get what it wants, it builds up. You know, One of the ways they talk in Buddhist psychology, there's any millisecond of what we think and do and say, none of it goes astray. It's all stored as memories. So things just don't go in one ear and out the other. You can have 50 events a day where attachment didn't get what it wanted. You broke the cup doing the dishes. Your boyfriend got mad at you, the red light. You don't deal with it. You just get more and more stressed, more and more broken. You don't deal with it at that moment. You let it, you build up, build up, and then you either you're inert in bed at, by the in a month depressed, or you want to kill yourself because it builds up, and we don't deal with the small moments. So learning to deal with the small moments and solving it, then you don't carry it around with you. You know, so I think the depression one is because in our society we're all dissatisfied. No matter the more we get, the more we have this dissatisfaction. I think it's not meant to be. It's not meant to be religious. It's obvious the more you get, the more you want. You're never satisfied. But we keep being convinced that tomorrow I'll get it. You know, the cake will do it. Another boyfriend, another this. So there's so much agitation, so much. It's not saying it's not being against um, having things. You can be a multimillionaire and be satisfied, but you can be poor and be dissatisfied. So it's a mental thing we're describing. So I think is this, go on.
1: Is it something, is it, I just am curious, is that something innately in us when we're born?
2: This or, is what the Buddhist view would say is attachment, and this is why the Buddhist view would say, we bring this from many lifetimes of okay. okay. practicing it. It's deeply instinctive. I mean, look at this one of dissatisfaction, especially the one of not just I haven't got enough, but I am not enough. Look at that one, the self-loathing we had. The Dalai Lama heard it and he said, that's a mental illness. That's the really serious dissatisfaction. We loathe ourselves. So we're never happy. We want to change our nose, change our gender, change. I'm not being rude about it. I'm not being political. We're never satisfied with what we have or what I am. What do we ever achieve? It's never enough. Oh, I should, you know, we're ne- we're really we are our own worst enemies, as my mother used to say to me, this is the tragedy of this dissatisfaction. And the world is full of beautiful things and full of marvelous things. But we never can find because we're always looking out there instead of knowing we can change our mind and become satisfied. That seems almost insane to us, you know, but it's possible.
0: Why do you think it's, we're so afraid to look inside? Is it fear? are we afraid to know what we are we afraid to find out that we're much more than we think we are
2: well okay if we look at i think if we're so addicted to the outside that's a good reason not to want to look inside why should i in other words if you're my boyfriend and you're mean and someone says "Well, are being you know you could look at your anger why should i will should change there's one that's one approach the other one is we, the other attitude is we don't like looking at the unhappy stuff it's too pain. we get so much guilt so we, we either have blame denial or, or um or um blame de- blame denial or guilt. we live in those three and so it's hard to literally confront and see it and because then we think well I'm a bad person because we over exaggerate it but the thing is this is why it's so important we and this is our tragedy to see our good qualities will. we never do that. 27 people can tell you you're a nice person. We're dying to hear it again, but we don't believe it. One person says one bad word, you launch into it because you believe it yourself. This is the irony of ego. We are our own worst enemy. You know?
0: Is that is that what it is? Is it ego that has... Because it's weird. The irony, because the,
2: the view of ego in Buddhism isn't that you're a big, fat, powerful person. You're overwhelmed by attachment and neediness and hopelessness and no so and low self-esteem and anger and arrogance and and depression. That's the irony. They're the voices of ego. So when you learn to give up ego, you're not giving up your power. You're becoming more content, more fulfilled, less neurotic, more brave, more self-confident, and more loving and compassionate. That's the literal result of this work.
0: And maybe that's part of the misconception in the West is that we have this thought that the ego is our, you know, it's our bravado. It's our well, what right, we show right. on the outside.
2: So in other words, a person who's overwhelmingly self piteous and, and not being critical, we're all suffering, overwhelmingly self piteous, jealous, resentful, that's powerful ego. But it's the irony of the way we think of ego, whether you're arrogant or low self-esteem, they're both symptoms of the same problem. You know, there's this overdeveloped sense of I either I'm hopeless or I'm special. So when you lessen the neuroses, which is the Buddhist job, you grow the goodness in you. You become less, literally less self-centered, more connected, therefore more fulfilled. It's hard so to so by
1: understand. so by the process of healing oneself, yeah. you it, you you basically kind of uh, detach from the ego, or or you, you know
2: you let you throw it away, which doesn't mean you give up a sense of self. You have a more healthy sense of self a more content self of self and more you rejoice more in your own good qualities. You see your own good qualities. You're happy with yourself. You're fulfilled, but also you're loving and kind to others. It connects you to others as well. Because when you're overwhelmed by depression and anxiety and anger, you can't see past your own nose, you know? So we are the ones who suffer. First, the Buddhist view is we've got to see, not just feeling guilty. When we talk about looking at your own anger, your own jealousy, your own depression, not just feel guilty about it, but to know that that's what's breaking our hearts but we kind of want to blame other people for those. It's not my fault. They might not be. The world is terrible. People do terrible things to us. But if we can own these parts of ourselves, that's right. Like my friend's in prison. I've got a friend on death row, you know, Mitchell. He's getting close to his death date. He's been there 30 years. He's done amazing work on himself. He's taken responsibility. He's a content fellow, you know. He's got this, he lives in this garbage dump and on death row in Kentucky with 40 other guys in their red jumpsuits. They're on the death row Some with some wacko guys. I know some of them. He's content, fulfilled, does his practice every day, helps others. And he's getting, I'm ready for that electric jolt, he said. He's done the job, you know, and he's in this garbage dump. I mean, I know wonderful. People, I'm trying to make them all sound like special, but they 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 can't change the outside, and they change their own mind and become fulfilled and content and therefore compassionate and wise. You know, this is the whole idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and if and if that's not proof enough, I don't know what is because that's right, exactly. You know, somebody is it now? See, I don't know how much you work with these um, people in your in the prisons, but to, okay. is it hard for you t- when you do? lose them
2: i mean a couple of our friends have, have been have been executed yeah we had one guy a couple but i mean they're just so fulfilled and content and they're ready for it they're ready for it so it's very inspiring they die a happy death it sounds so weird but they know they got this they've, they've taken they've come to terms with their lives and they die happy they're content they're not full of rage and despair you know so it's very inspiring we're all got to die at some point so if you can be ready for it and know your life's been worthwhile and you used you, you developed yourself and you helped others that's a good way to die isn't it
1: Yes, it is. And you helped yeah. them do that. So that's, that's really exactly,
2: great. Exactly, exactly.
1: Is that really
0: part of the earth? Is really the earth school really about developing yourself? Is it really about self-development?
2: Well, self-development has, there's a nice analogy in Buddhism that a bird needs two wings, wisdom and compassion. So the wisdom wing is putting yourself together which is the first stages of practice in Buddhism. On the basis of that, when you become fulfilled, you've given up the rubbish old I. You don't have to worry about I anymore. You fixed your I, now you can help others. The compassion wing is the point. When you're overwhelmed by your own junk, you can't see past your own nose, you've got to sort yourself out. And that's the job, the first stages of the job in Buddhism. And it's not meant to be self-centered, it's intelligent. And then you can be a benefit to the world and be powerful and content and fulfilled and never give up and be, be marvelous and useful on the planet.
0: Is that why so many healer so many damaged people become healers?
2: I don't know about that. I haven't thought about that. I don't know.
0: Cuz we're all trying to make up for something in a way. I
2: don't know, not, I don't know about that. I don't say it that way. We'll, I understand your point, but I haven't thought of it like that.
1: Oh. Okay. I do think it would I I I do think it would add. I mean, as you can say, I'm just speaking for myself, but it definitely adds to you know, being grateful and, and you know, having something um, tangible to hold on to that you can see.
2: Say a bit more. What do you say?
1: Well, I'm just saying in, in response for Will, um, yeah. just because, you know, we both come at this through um, suffering and through our own experiences. Okay. And I think through, you know, through this helping yeah. you
2: know helping others I think when you go when you go through the fires of your own suffering and misery it's a you could either go more mad or it's a wake-up call and then you really have empathy for others but when, when you've really been through your own shit, you can only have, emp- finally have empathy for others, then it's very powerful, I, that I agree. And even just taking the ordinary Buddhist view, even if not a crazy person or been much particularly suffering, when you learn to know your mind and you see the attachment, you hear the jealousy, you hear the resentment, ordinary level, you see the pain it causes you that's the real thing the buddha's telling us but we just get guilty about it but to see the pain it's causing me and that's why my friend sunny was so amazing i they couldn't take my mind from me and she told me herself she said (coughs) i knew i mean she nearly went mad in solitary she was completely innocent her kids had been taken away her husband's got executed his brain burst into bloody flames excuse me swearing australians say bloody (coughs) she living in a cell on her own. I mean, in isolation, you know, treated like an animal for years with a Bible. That's all she had. So she used her own inner resources. She knew she didn't want to go crazy. She knew she had the power to work with herself. She said, I knew I had the choice to change myself, not to be overwhelmed by the anger and the rage. She knew she could change her story. So this is the most powerful example. She's amazing. Now she's out of prison in Ireland. She's old now helping people who have been wrongly accused. You know, she's just an amazing human being who had the power to, and she did, she's not a Buddhist. She didn't have any particular path. She did yoga and stuff. You know, she's got this natural, I would call it emotional intelligence that she could see she didn't want to go crazy. And she had the power to be able to do that. That's rare.
1: Do you see, would do you, like for, I, I don't know what, if you want to just call them regular civilians, like I, people yeah. not in prison Yeah. now, would you say working with someone outside of prison as opposed to working with someone in in prison?
2: Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
1: Is it easier or difficult? I mean, I know they're different, obviously, I'm but
2: I would say the ones I know in prison are really good practitioners, meaning they really take this approach seriously. Yeah. They're way more powerful at it because their lives are just shitholes. The food right. is nasty. the prisons are garbage. They have no, there's no sensory pleasure. There's no ordinary levels of joy. So they're the ones who are so powerful, who really become content, fulfilled human beings with nothing out there they, and they can't choose anything. Look at the luxury we have, having a coffee when you want it, how you want it, go where you want, think what you want, say what you want. It's almost as if we don't even realize we have choice. So you hate your job. For years, you've been going to your job. Well, you know, you could change your job, Rabina. Oh, no, no, I couldn't do that. I'll never get another job. Well, you know, if you can't change your job, then you could try and see the job differently and try and see the good side of it, like my friends in prison, so you can be more content. Oh, no, no, I couldn't do that. It's a lousy job. So what are you doing? You you can't choose. You change your mind and you can't choose to change the environment. So you're paralyzed. So my friends in prison know they can change their minds. So it's much more, they're much more, it's it's much harder for us. Outside. It's almost like right.
1: we we have more distractions on more the outside. More distractions
2: and more belief. Well, if I did really get that one, and if I really did get another job, then I would be happy.
1: We're okay. kind of living yes. this
2: kind of fantasy hope rather than dealing with it right now and knowing. Okay, I mean, people who you know, I mean, people write to me, and I mean, I'm very happy to help people. They see me on YouTube, they write to me, and i job is to help people, so I do my best. But it's really some people who have suffering in relationship for years, but too afraid to leave it. Too afraid to leave the job, and but also too afraid to change their mind. No, no, it's not possible. I couldn't do that. So we just stay as a victim, paralyzed. There's nothing mean about us. We should be compassionate because it's really hard to do this job. But somehow when your back's against the wall and you've got no other choice, like my friends in prison, they really come to the party. I have such admiration. I can't tell you.
1: Does it seem like we in that example that we you just talked about, we would gamble with okay, our, our let's say our job sucks, we're gambling with, all right, I'm scared to, to not take another job, okay, so I'm going to gamble with staying here, but at the same time, we're gambling staying there and thinking that it might get better?
2: No, okay, no, the real thing is, like with my friends in prison, they can't change the outside, but they then they the only choice they've got is to change their mind, so they become happy. That's my point. So there is yeah, a way. No, I, Possibly, I, I I'm, I'm in a relationship. I, I've got yeah. I've got to first decide is there something worthwhile in my relationship with Will? Instead of always moaning, he did this and he did that, and it's hopeless, I'm lonely, I'm sad, and I hate him, he's miserable. So I've then got to decide first, well, is it worthwhile staying in this relationship? We never get to that point, we just we, we just complain. So then if I do decide there's something worthwhile in this relationship, we've got some connection, it's a good opportunity for me to learn something, then you decide to stay, then everything changes. Or you decide to leave. We're afraid to do both. So deciding really is the point. You can decide. I mean, my friends in prison, in a sense, have decided, okay, I'm in prison. Not resisting. That's the so-called acceptance, which sounds kind of cute. But that's profound, you know. This is my job. I can't get another one. So I'm going to see if I can make the most of it. Then everything changes. This is the whole point.
0: Is, is that really the definition of emotional intelligence, realizing that my you...
2: term. I mean, that's a very loose term and people call it... Lots of people use that in a more formal way. I would say that's intelligent, but not just being cl- cl- smart up here.
0: Okay. Because emotional intelligence... But...
2: No, I know there's a particular frame phrase people use. I don't mean it like that. Uh, okay. Maybe, maybe it's conscious intelligence. Maybe it's awareness, aware intelligence, not just intelligence being smarty pants. <laughs>
0: I I, we all like to be smarty pants, though. So oh, okay.
2: <laughs> okay. So what's what else then? Um, I,
0: I wanted you to discuss a little bit about what the Buddhist view of reincarnation is and what it means okay. from you. the Buddhist view. Yeah, of
2: course. I can tell you roughly speaking. Absolutely. Basically, the Buddhist view is, and this is interesting. By the way, I should preface it with this: we have to remember where this information came from. Buddha is not a creator. He doesn't, there's no concept of a creator in Buddhism. That's where people who have very much devotion in a creator are shocked to hear and don't want to hear more, you know, but this is just a fact. Buddha came along and he doesn't have, He he's, um, he's you know, his view is this and, and it's coming from his observation. He's not a creator. And there's a very interesting point. Um, When I was at a talk, I always quote this in, in, in New Zealand years ago, and there was a scientist, happened to be a scientist in the group. And he asked the question, when I was talking about karma, reincarnation, which I'll do, he said, "Where, who revealed the teachings to the Buddha? Which is a perfect question if you believe in a creator. A creator, I mean, I was a Catholic, right? Creator invents the universe, creates the laws runs the show punishes and rewards so it's obvious it's revelation that's how we think of religious philosophy it's coming from on high there's no view like that in buddhism so while i said in my answer would you ask einstein who revealed the teachings about relativity to him everybody laughed but that's the buddha's approach so the buddhist the hypothesis to take is everything that is buddhism is coming from Buddha's own direct observation. We know that's Einstein. He didn't have a dream. He didn't have a vision. He's not making it up. We know he used his noggin and he observed the world and he's come up with his own findings. So that's exactly the Buddhist approach. So, of course, the difference in Buddhism, and this is the Indian approach coming from before the Buddha, the idea of consciousness or mind is it's not physical. It goes to much more subtle levels of cognition. But like I said before, we don't even posit in the neuroscientific model. And it's, we're not the handiwork of a creator and we're actually not the handiwork of mommy and daddy. Mom and dad gave me a brain, GNA and all the rest, but consciousness is not physical. And it comes from before, before it goes back. It's like a river of mental moments that goes back and back and back and back and back. And when we die, it'll just inevitably go forward, forward, forward. This is the Buddha's view, okay? So, and then the second one is this law of karma. It's a natural law for the Buddha. He didn't make it up. There's no boss. If there's, because there's no creator, there's no rewarder, and there's no punisher, so it's not punishment and reward, it's a natural law such that everything any being thinks and does and says and does programs <laughs> programs your mind, programs your mind, so seeds in your mind that will ripen in the future in that river of mental moments and produce the person you become. So we are in a sense that Dalai Lama said karma is like self-creation. So all our happiness and all our suffering are coming from seeds we've planted in our own mind from our own past actions. So in this sense, we are the creator of ourselves. We're therefore we're in charge. We're the boss. That's the, essentially the Buddhist view of reincarnation. And that can be human, other kinds of creatures as well. And this is the law that governs all beings is what Buddha would say. That's the general idea. Wow.
0: Thank you so much for taking time. I okay. know you've been traveling a lot. Um, Timmy, before we get into the last part of the show, um, do you want to ask the venerable Rubina yes. anything else?
1: I, I would like to um, just, yeah, um, because you had you had talked about um, the bird with wisdom and compassion.
2: Two wi- um, bird two wings, wisdom and compassion. Yes.
1: Do you, in your opinion, do you think that we as humans can be taught compassion?
2: Oh, God, yes. This is what we're doing in Buddhism. Absolutely. But the first step is, as the Dalai Lama says, compassion is not enough. You've got to do the wisdom wing. In other words, put it this way typical person, you know, join the universe. I'm not talking about psychotics here. We're not talking about Hitler's. We're talking about ordinary human beings. We've got some attachment, some anger, some jealousy, some depression, some low self esteem. Look at the world, some guilt. And the Buddha is saying that's what's holding us back. That's what makes us miserable. That's what cuts me off from others. That's what makes me isolated and this very concrete me. So then, I've got some compassion, but excuse me. As long as your, you know, my compassion for you doesn't upset me too much, then I'm prepared to be compassionate. But so, if, as I lessen my own neuroses, I become less neurotic, more content, more fulfilled, but just naturally more compassionate. And that, then, we can grow that to incredible degrees. Do you see what I'm saying?
1: Wow. Yes, I do. Thank, thank you for putting it that way. Actually, yes.
2: It's a very proactive, full-on, step-by-step job of turning ourselves into these marvelous, wise, fulfilled, compassionate beings. That's the way to put it.
1: And wow. it almost sounds like by by doing the work and yes. healing, yes. these yes. things are like are products of
2: that. Precisely. That's the point. Yes, exactly. Gotcha.
1: Gotcha. Got
2: potential, and that's where you get more i mean i can, yeah that's where you get that's it. we've all got the potential that's the point that's the point that's what the buddhist view is we've all got the potential,
0: you know. wow. so potential. never
2: give wow Lead to success never give up never give up never give up
0: awesome timmy it's been an awesome conversation uh we finish up every episode with three questions
1: oh, so good. Okay. i'm gonna have tim ask the first one i just want i wanted to add something real quick because i was going to say something earlier about it and um i forgot that um you can also find um robina on youtube and she has these videos called something to think about and they're these short little videos but they are so full of knowledge um so if you're interested in hearing them you just look her up on youtube and she has a whole slew of these uh well, I think, someone, I
2: think I don't know. I never look, but someone puts them on Facebook and TikTok and uh, Instagram. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Well. Yeah, I'm so sure. But yeah, that, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Cool. Anyway, question.
1: Okay. So do you have a favorite or a least favorite word?
2: Favorite word. I can't think of one. I'm sorry. I like words. It's <laughs> my job. I edit books and have to speak words all the time. Enthusiasm. Optimism. Okay. okay enthusiasm. Optimism. One of those. Okay. We'll take it. Do you have
1: a a least favorite?
2: Well, that's all the rude swear words, and I say too many of them, (laughs) so I better not repeat them. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I
0: I wanted to ask you, what brought you to Buddhism?
2: Well, I mean, since I'm a little girl, I brought up in a Catholic family in Australia, one of seven kids in the 40s. I was born in 1944. And I mean, as soon as I went to mass, I thought, Mom, that's my job. I'm going to be a priest. So it was very strong in me, you know, maybe talk about past karma. It was like the most natural thing in the world. And all the time as a little girl, I was the naughtiest kid in the family, the naughtiest, most rebellious kid at school. But it was deep inside me. I thought about these things all the time. And when I was 12, I was on my knees begging my mother, let me be a nun like one of these holy saints, you know. And then she cried. I cried when she said no. And then 20 years later, when I told her I'm a Buddhist nun, she cried. So I think my life, if I look back on it, my life led me. So I was a like, You know, Catholic, then I was 19, I was in the 60s. I gave up God and decided goodbye God, hello boys. I became a raging hippie. And then I became a raging radical lefty, was in England, right and ready for revolution in the 60s. Then I became a raging kind of black politics, supporting black politics, then a raging feminist, And then I'd literally exhausted all options of who to blame for the world. So uh, when I was a Catholic, I blamed the non-Catholics. A hippie, I blamed the straight people. A radical lefty, I blamed the rich people. Black politics, I blamed the white people. Feminists, I blamed the males. I had no one left to blame. And by the age of 31, I bumped into these Tibetan lamas and they said, guess what, Rabina? It's about time you started looking at your own mind. I'd never thought of that before. So here I am 45 years later.
0: Thank you for sharing. You just, you just, you brought some really deep insight to me and you also just kind of gave me a smack upside the head too. So I appreciate that.
2: I'm happy.
1: Dropping wisdom, dropping
2: wisdom. Okay. Can I just, can I sing a a little 30 second prayer to finish?
1: Yeah, I I got one quick question first. Is that that all right? Um, if, If there was something that you could do or that you would like to see done, For mental health as a whole without any kind of restraint, Mm -hmm. what would it be?
2: Making available as much as possible tools to help us see our own minds and know that we've got the potential to be our own therapist, as one of my teachers said.
0: Love it. Love it. Thank you so much. That is so amazing. Um, Timmy, it's been an incredible conversation. I know. That's why I wanted to finish our stuff up so she can take us out because I wanted to finish this up with her beautiful prayer at the end. So it's been amazing. It's been another awesome above ground podcast. So thank you so much. Yes. Thank thank you you so so much. much.
2: It's been great to talk to you too. It's been incredible to
0: talk to you. So please, please bring us out with your prayer.
2: Okay. So two prayers are very short. One is kind of saying this hour we've been together, all these thoughts we've had, may they, may we continue to nourish these thoughts, so that we can all develop our own amazing potential so we can be a benefit to others and the other one is just saying make compassion grow and grow in the hearts of all i'll just sing in tibetan okay Sing in tibetan gewa <laughs> chi. The De- first jang choob sam cho green porchay makhe panam kepanyam pa me payang gong ne gong du hal ba thank
0: you so much wow it's been a pleasure
2: you're doing a great job both of you i love you
0: Thank you very Thank you. much. We love you. Thank and you. you're doing an incredible Thank job. Please stay safe. Time. Be well.
2: Do my best. Thank you, darling. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you.
0: Have a great night.
1: Bye. Bye. Thank you for giving us a listen. New episodes every Wednesday. If you listen on Apple Podcast, you can share, rate, review, and even subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Other ways to support the show? Follow us on social media. Share the content. Share our episodes. You can also buy us a coffee